Amen. What a joy to be with the people of God here at Woodlawn. Thank you for the joy of being on mission on your behalf this past week in Utah. We had an incredible week, and we're delighted to be back. I don't know if you noticed, but I for sure noticed Miss Savannah Klaus was on the piano this morning for us. Savannah. Thank you for using your gifts and talents to serve the body of Christ here at Woodlawn. Savannah, we have her just for a few more weeks, and then she'll be headed off to Mississippi College as a, as a freshman. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Psalms. And as you turn to Psalms, turn specifically to Psalm 44, Psalm 44, as you make your way to this incredible revelation of God. And here, Psalm 44, the psalmist begins, as you might remember from the hymn that we just sang, with this incredible reflection on God's graciousness to them. And if we pause for just a few moments this morning, each of us for sure could pen our own psalm and reflect and recount on the incredible goodness of God toward us regardless of our circumstances. And this is exactly what the psalmist does here in Psalm 44. He begins with these first, in these first eight verses with this in, incredible, beautiful, poetic description, giving thanks to God for all of his past works, for all of his present works, and expressing this great confidence in the Lord in his future acts. As we reflect on this text, Psalm 44, verses 1 through 8, we can see this eternal truth fleshed out in these few verses. Believers can have confidence. Believers can have confidence that God has, God is, and God will work on our behalf. Believers can have confidence that God has, that God currently is, and that God will indeed, in the future, work on our behalf. Listen as the psalmist begins to recount and reflect upon God's work in the past and the present and expressing confidence in God's work in the future. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them, the nation of Israel, you have planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, the nation of Israel, you have set free, or you have sent out, you have freed. For by their own sword, that is the nation of Israel's own sword, uh, they did not win the land by their own sword, nor did their own name or own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Notice verse 4. You are my God. My King, oh my God, ordain, declare salvation. 
order, command, victories for Jacob. Verse five, through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. Verse six, for not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and hear his expression of hope and God's future acts. And we will give thanks to your name forever. The psalmist takes us on a brief journey of God's past acts, his current, act, his current acts, and expresses hope in God's future acts on behalf of his people as he recounted just briefly in summation God's incredible work on behalf of the nation of Israel in the past. Did you notice a number of times that the psalmist recounted, you, God, your hand, you saved, you delivered Notice how he begins these, this, this, this psalm at the very beginning. Oh God, an expression of deep faith and trust and hope in the one who himself has worked continually on behalf of his people. What have you done, God? The psalmist recounts primarily the fact that God has chosen for himself a nation. God has called to himself this group of people, and the psalmist recounts as one who has been chosen by God, knowing that the greatest act that God could have ever accomplished on behalf of a group of people is providing salvation. And we'll see that in just a moment in verse four as he casts his faith and trust in the salvation that God has provided. Notice what he says, Lord, you have worked these deeds in the past. He's remembering in summation God's incredible acts toward the nation of Israel. He's recalling when God called Abram from the land of Ur and set him on a journey and, and through Abraham called himself a, a group of people and through calling to himself a group of people, he, he gave his people not only his name, but he, he gave them their own land, the, the promised land. He gave them the nation of, of Israel. And of course the journey to that promised land was one filled with surprises, one filled with great difficulty, but at the end of the day, the Lord has provided for his people these incredible deeds. Look at verse two. The psalmist is acknowledging none of these acts would have happened without the gracious hand providence of God. Notice how he says it here, it's very emphatic. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. God removed the nations from the promised land, and he says, Lord, you planted your people there. This idea of God planting his people in the nation of Israel is a sense of permanency. Think of it in terms of planting an oak tree. As you tour around the state of Louisiana, you can find yourself at a number of locations with these beautiful, gorgeous oak trees that were at some point in time planted. 
And as I understand it, a number of these oak trees are 300 plus years old. We understand planting an oak tree. If you or I were to plant an oak tree, it's going to for sure outlive our tenure. It'll outlive our grandchildren's tenure. It'll outlive our grandchildren's grandchildren's children, right? There's a sense of permanency. The writer is acknowledging that God has planted, God has given, God has ordained, God has ordered his people to be in this gracious land. Yet, notice the comparison again here at the end of verse 2. You afflicted the peoples. You afflicted the pagan nations. But God, you, on behalf of your people, you have set them free. We could also translate this word set free as being sent out. And the idea is that which we get from the Pentateuch. You remember from the very beginning of God's relationship with humanity that God has placed Adam and Eve in the context of the garden. He's placed them for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is that they might be fruitful and multiply. And you've read the narrative of the book of Genesis. We get to the very end of the book of Genesis, and the one that God has uh, ordained to bring about salvation for the nation of Israel, it doesn't end well for him, does it? Joseph dies. And we're left wondering, what will happen with this group of people? But guess what happens? You turn the page in Exodus chapter 1. The Lord reminds us of his incredible graciousness. You know what the Bible says? The children of Israel are going to be fruitful and multiply. This was God's graciousness towards his people. That they indeed would grow and number. And this is what the psalmist is recounting. He's recounting God's faithfulness to his people. These pagan nations, in some cases, have been completely, totally wiped out, but not so for the people of God, not so for the nation of Israel. They have been set free to accomplish. They have been turned loose. They have been sent out to accomplish what God has called them to do. And in the same manner, friends, we too, as the people of God today, bear this same responsibility of being sent out. God has called you and me as we reflect on God's graciousness, part of God's graciousness to his church, part of God's graciousness to believers is that he has called you and he has called me to go forth and declare the beauty of his son Jesus Christ. And how does the church increase? How does the people of God today increase? Because God has given us land? No. We increase as lost sinners come to faith in Christ. God has so graciously given to his people this beautiful gift of salvation. Verse 3, they've not accomplished one thing on their own. The nation of Israel can't boast in anything, can they? They can't boast in their freedom. They can't boast in the fact that they have accumulated this piece of land, a land that is now their own. They can't even boast in their military might, for not by their own sword did they win the land, 
nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. See what the psalmist is saying? God has so graciously acted in the past toward his people for one primary purpose, because God takes delight in his people. Friend, I don't know where you find yourself this morning as you reflect on life, but might you affirm with the psalmist regardless of your current circumstances, how difficult they might be or how gracious they might be, that God has delighted in you and in me his people, God has so graciously given to us his favor. And it's not anything that we've deserved. It's not anything that we can earn. You can't work your way into the delight of God. Notice again what the psalmist says, it's not by their own sword that they achieved it. God has so decisively acted on behalf of his people, and he's done that so graciously for you and me through the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. Were it not for the act of Jesus Christ, friend, each of us today would still be dead in our trespasses and our sins, separated from a holy, good, righteous God. And as a psalmist reflects on God's past acts, Notice what it leads him to exclaim here. You are my king, O God. Command or ordain salvation. Command or ordain victories. This word here for salvation is at the very root, a name that you have heard before in your Hebrew Bibles, Yeshua, Joshua, from which we come into the New Testament and get the name Jesus. This is why Matthew tells us in the very beginning of Matthew chapter one that Jesus will be one who will save his people from their sins. Yeshua means to save. This psalm, no doubt, is a psalm that reflects on a a military victory or or defeat. It's reflecting on what God has, in large measure, from a military standpoint, done on behalf of his people. And as the psalmist thinks about going into battle, as the psalmist thinks about going into a military conflict, he is reminded of that truth of which the Old Testament has regularly reminded us, that God is one who fights on behalf of his people people. He is, if you will, a fighting God. He is the God of armies, the Old Testament reminds us. And this is what the psalmist is recounting. Lord, you are my king. A king was tasked with a number of responsibilities. One of the primary responsibilities of a king, even the Old Testament kings, was protection for the nation of Israel from foreign invaders. And the psalmist is reflecting on God's past acts and just simply acknowledging God has been this one who has fought on behalf of his people. And now the psalmist is saying, Lord, we want you to increase our victories. This word ordain or command 
salvation. In my ESV, it says salvation. It's actually a plural word. The psalmist is asking that God might give them continued victories. Not just now, not just in this present circumstance. He is asking and expecting that God might continually provide salvation. Now, not salvation in terms of a right relationship with God. Salvation from their enemies. That God would indeed be one who acts continually on behalf of his people. And then notice what the psalmist does, beginning in verse 4. Verse 5, he now moves into a position where he reflects on what God is presently, at this moment, doing on behalf of his people. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. The psalmist is filled with great joy as he reflects upon the way in which God is currently moving on their behalf. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and just reflect upon God's current kindness toward you. He's given you the gift of life at this very moment. He's given you the gift of a family, as I look out across this congregation, I see a number of you seated with family. That is a gift from God. He's given us at this very moment His Word. The fact that you and I at this very moment have access to know who God is through His Word and by His Spirit is a kind act of God toward you and me now at this very moment he's given us his spirit who serves as a source of truth who serves as a source of comfort who guides us who leads us For those of you who are connected to the body of Christ at Woodlawn, at this very moment, one of God's most gracious acts toward you and me is that he has given us to one another. And I suppose we could spend the rest of the afternoon reflecting and recounting in all the ways in which God is currently gracious and kind to you and me at this very moment. But I want you to notice something real quickly. As the psalmist recounts God's past acts and God's present acts, 
he's also reminding us that he completely and totally trusts in God's providence in the future. Look what he says at the very end of verse 8. In God we have continued, boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name. How long? Forever. The psalmist is resting in a settled position in God's providential care toward his people. But notice what the psalmist is doing in these first eight verses. There is a very clear structure to the verses here in verses one through eight that point us to this central truth concerning God. Everything from verses one to three points us to verse four. And everything from verses five to eight point us back to this eternal truth we need and see here in verse four. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation through Jacob. Notice how he does it just real quickly. Notice verse one. The psalmist recounts God's acts toward him in the past. Traditions of the past, ways in which God has acted toward them in the past. Look at the very end of verse 8. He praises God in relationship to those future acts that God will do on his behalf. Look at verse 2. The enemy thanks, uh, uh, the psalmist thanks God for his victory over his past enemies. But notice in verse 5a what the psalmist does. Through you we push down our foes. We have gained victory in the present over our enemies. And I can continue so forth and so on that shows us that verse 4 is the central theme of these first eight verses. The psalmist wants you and me to wholly trust and rely in this eternal truth. Can you declare this morning with the psalmist that God is your king? Are you living well and right this morning in his kingdom? The text says that God delights in his people. The question might be asked of your heart and my heart this morning, are you delighting in being part of God's kingdom? Friend, if you're here today and you can't declare with the psalmist or with the people of God that God is indeed your king, Would you please know from this text of Scripture that God has done everything that is necessary on your behalf for you to join the psalmist, for you to join the people of God in this room in declaring today that God is indeed your king. How has God done that? God has done that for you and me by sending forth his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God sent Jesus and Jesus took upon the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Jesus took upon God's anger and hatred towards sin. Jesus became and took upon the punishment that I deserved and that you deserved. And in doing so, Jesus and Jesus alone has appeased God's anger toward your sin and my sin, and he did that by dying a brutal death on the cross. Why? So that you, 
so that I might live free. If this psalm were to end at Psalm 44, verse 8, this would be an incredible psalm. An incredible psalm of thanksgiving. An incredible psalm of reflection on how God has so wonderfully provided for his people. But the purpose of Psalm 44 is not found in verses 1 through 8, but verses 1 through 8 are given to us that we too might move into what he's going to declare here in verses 9 through 26 with the same theological foundation that the psalmist has painted here in verse 8. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But notice verse 9. Notice how verse 9 starts. It starts with a conjunction. There are a number of important conjunctions throughout the narrative of Scripture. In fact, an important conjunction that is flipped on its end would be, for example, Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the, Paul reflects for you and me on how we used to be apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, how we were sinners separated from God. But then verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, but God... And then the psalmist tells us what God has done, uh, excuse me, Paul tells us what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. That is an important conjunction. Verse 9 is an important, weighty, difficult conjunction. But, how do believers respond to God when it feels as though God has become our enemy? How do believers respond to God when we sense, when we feel when we experience that God has become our enemy, when God's only answer to his people is continued anguish, when God's only response to his people is continued silence, even though we might say, Lord, I'm walking rightly with you. Even though we might exclaim, Lord, I've searched my heart and I don't see any sin that is so obvious in my life for which I need to repent. We must not lose faith that God still delights in his people. Notice how the psalmist recounts this beginning in verses 9 through verse 16. He shows us that the right place to express our anguish, the right place to express, watch this, our distrust 
and God is toward God. Verse 9, but you have, notice the text of Scripture, rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Lord, you have completely, totally humiliated us. It's no surprise as we've been going through the Psalms to be reminded of places where the nation of Israel has in their past also through the Psalms expressed this sense that God has indeed rejected them. Look with me in Psalm the first example here in, in Psalm chapter 9, verse 7. In, in, in Psalm, sorry, Psalm 42, not chapter 9, verse 7. We'll be there in just a few minutes. I'm sorry. Psalm 42. Look with me at Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now look just a few verses down in Psalm 43, verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Verse 44, chapter 44, verse 9. But look again at the very end of chapter 44 and verse 24. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 42, Psalm 43, and Psalm 44 are psalms of lament. I'm not going to re-preach Psalm 42 and 43 for you, but you remember as we went through those psalms that these are psalms of lament reflecting on this sense of grief that the psalmist here in Psalm 44 has been poured out on behalf of God toward his people. The narrative of Psalm 42, 43, and 44 is a narrative that is consistent with the narrative of God's relationship with his people. Friends, if you bought into Christianity because you believed it was a religion that taught that if you come to Jesus, that God will give you his favor, and by favor, nothing will go wrong in your life I'm here to disappoint you this morning by saying to you, you have not believed in the God or the Christianity of the Bible. The psalmist reminds us that it is the expression of the human heart that at times we walk through the valley of the shadow of death where we perceive that God has indeed rejected us. This is a corporate expression. Our, notice a number of times, even beginning in chapter 44, verse 1, that the psalmist says our. There are a few times, verse 4, again in verse 6, again in verses 15 and 16, where it changes from the plural to the singular. For example, verse 4 my king, verse 6, my, my bow, verse 6, my sword, verse 15, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. But this would be a time in which the king himself 
would have been responding on behalf of the nation of Israel as they laid in anguish before a holy, righteous God. God has completely, totally humiliated them. Look at verse 10. God has allowed them to be conquered. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoiled. They've robbed us, God. They've taken everything from us. In some ways, it recounts the life of Job, does it not? Job had gotten to that place in his life where God literally had taken everything from Job. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. He's saying, Lord, you've enslaved us by enemies. Verse 12, you sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Lord, you're not even a good businessman. Your people were worth a lot. They were incredibly wealthy, but you just sold them for pennies on the dollar. Lord, what in the world is going on with you? Verse 13, you made us taunt of our neighbors and derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Who is responsible for the current rejection of God toward his people. Five times following verse 9 down to verse 14, the psalmist with clarity answers the question for the one who is directly responsible for the situation in which the nation of Israel finds herself in. We don't know exactly what this corporate psalm of lament is referring to. There's some guesses we could make. We could look back to a number of examples from the Old Testament in which, even in the book of Judges, in which the nation of Israel was captured by a foreign people. But the psalmist doesn't reveal for us exactly what defeat she has experienced at this moment. But there is one thing that the psalmist is certain of as he reflects on the defeat of the people of God. The defeat of the people of God. The rejection of the people of God lies squarely at the feet of the one and whom they claim to believe in as being this almighty, all-powerful God, Elohim. Notice what the psalmist says, verse 10, you, verse 11, you, verse 12, you, verse 13, you, verse 14, you. How do the people 
of God respond when God, it appears, has become the enemy of his own people. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you've been in that moment of great despair when it seems that every good thing in life has been taken. The psalmist reminds us, friends, that on our journey with God, God himself has not promised you or me a journey free of troubles. And when we experience those moments in life in which we believe, perceive, experience that God has turned his face against us, how do believers respond? Well, friends, the psalmist reminds us that one of the ways in which you and I can rightly respond to God during grief is by going directly to him with our concerns. We like to live in an expression of Christianity where we balk at any idea of casting blame onto God. And I'm not saying to you this morning that it's right to cast blame on God. I'm just simply acknowledging a truth of the human heart. The psalmist doesn't go to the city square and bemoan the plot that God has given him. The psalmist doesn't go to Twitter or to Facebook and complain about the difficulty of life. The psalmist doesn't go to Twitter or to Facebook or to his neighbor and bemoan the lot that God has given to him. No, he goes directly toward God. And this isn't the first time that we've heard from the word of God one that has gone to God with deep concerns. You might remember the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk levels incredible accusations against the very character of God. Why? Because he too is living in a day in which he experiences that God has become his enemy. The psalm here in verses 15 And 16 closes with some symmetry reflecting on this truth. While in verses 10 through 14, they all begin with you, what you, God, have done. He starts verses 15 and 16 with two words spelled differently, but that sound exactly the same. (coughs) This word here in verse 15, and again in verse 16, the word all in verse 15, and the word sound in verse 16 Spelled differently, pronounced the same, coal. So the Israelites would have heard this, this language, all day long my disgrace, dis, disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the coal of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. The psalmist is at a place in which he senses there is 
absolutely no hope whatsoever left in trust before a good, holy God. So the right place to express our distrust is to God. But notice what verses 17, and 12, 17 through 22 show us that the right place to express our distrust is toward God, even, even when we believe we are walking rightly with God. We've seen this already before in the Psalms. There are accounts from the Psalms in which the psalmist himself is recounting that he is in a terrible situation because of his own sin. In fact, you might remember just a few Psalms ago in Psalm 40 and verse 12, this is exactly what the psalmist recounted. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Psalm 40, the psalmist is saying, Lord, I know that I'm in this deplorable shape because of my own sin. But notice what the psalmist says here in, verse 44, in chapter 44, verse 17. All this has come upon us, though, Lord, we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. We have remained in covenantal faithfulness with you, Lord. Our heart has, has not turned back from you, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet, God, you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? Would God not have known this? God, would you have not seen our idolatry? End of verse 21. For God knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalmist says, Lord, there's nothing in my life for which I perceive I need to repent. God, there's, there's no sense of, of idolatry. Perhaps the nation of Israel is remind, remembering God's promises from Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verses 15 and 16, where God said to the nation of Israel, if you walk in covenantal faithfulness with me, you will have my covenantal blessings. But if you fail in your covenant promises toward me, God says, you will experience my wrath. The psalmist is wrestling with this truth to say, but God, we have been faithful. And do you see the question he asked? Lord, we believe you're all-knowing. We believe, God, that you're omnipotent. Surely, verse 21, you would have indeed discovered this. Why does the psalmist feel this way? Because he knows that there is one and only one who knows the true intentions of everyone's hearts. It is God. 
Psalm 7, verse 9. Psalm 7, verse 9. Listen how the psalmist recounts. Concerning Yahweh, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, oh, righteous God. Who knows the hearts of humanity? God, look at Psalm 17. Psalm 17, verse 3. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. Who knows the heart? Who knows my heart? Who knows your heart? Psalm 26, Psalm 26, verse 2, prove me, O Lord, and try me, and test my heart and my mind. The psalmist is somewhat confused. God is acting in a way that seems to be uh, inconsistent with the way in which he has responded to his people on behalf of the Lord. If there were surely some sin, you would know it. You would reveal it to us, God. Yet, verse 22, all we are are like a helpless group of sheep who are being led to the slaughter. What type of sheep could be led to the slaughter? A sheep with spots? Or a sheep without spots? What type of sheep was acceptable for a sacrifice for God? A blameless, a perfect sheep. A sheep without spots. You see what Israel is saying? Lord, we are that blameless sheep. Yet, how is God responding to his people? He's allowing them to be led to the slaughter. You might remember this verse. For it's a verse that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 8. As Paul himself is recounting the incredible benefit and blessings of God toward his people, even as he reflects on the fact that his people are living in a time in which they groan. And sometimes our groanings are so deep, we don't know even know how to express that pain to God, and the Spirit of God on our behalf intercedes for us to the Father. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, then what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is, to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus our Lord. Friends, Paul picks up on this verse to remind us, as the psalmist will hear at the very last few verses, in verses 23 and 26, that there will indeed be times in our lives where we will experience incredible separation from God or what we perceive to be incredible separation from God. But know this, even as we face those difficult times in life, even when we believe we are those sheep being led to the slaughter, friend, nothing, even during that, even during that incredible time of perceived separation, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Listen how John Calvin summarizes verses 9 through 22. He writes, quote, In order, therefore, that weariness or dread of the cross may not root up from our heart's true godliness, let us continually reflect upon this, that it behooves us to drink the cup which God puts in our hands and that no one can be a Christian who does not dedicate himself to God. Are you willing to drink whatever cup God sends your way? You see, friends, a few moments ago, I said if we don't move from a settled position of verse 8, in God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name. If that is not a settled disposition of your heart now, friends, don't fool yourself to think that when adversity comes knocking on your door, you will remain faithful to God. Yes, the psalmist expresses deep distrust in God. But notice how he ends it. Verse 23 through 26. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. <coughs> Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our bellies cling to the ground. Lord, we can't go any lower. I am at the complete end of my rope. 
Verse 26. Regardless of our circumstances, we must increase our faith in God. Look what the psalmist says. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You know what the psalmist does? He concludes by casting himself upon the very character of God. How could the psalmist reflect and cast himself upon the character of God? Because he knew God. Because he walked rightly with God. And in this moment of intense distress and humiliation and rejection and enslavement and derision, the psalmist knows this one thing. God is covenantally faithful to his people. And through Jesus, friends, God will ultimately fulfill his promise to his people. For the Bible says that in a shout and the twinkling of an eye, Jesus Christ is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, he will fulfill this steadfast love that the psalmist spoke of. He will, it will culminate God's promise toward his people. The height of God's love toward his people is he fulfills his promises. You might not be there today. You might just be coming out of it. But for all of us, at some point, we will journey this road of humiliation. And when we do, how will you respond to God when you perceive that God has become your enemy. Two days ago, Carly and I sat down and watched a little movie that was written or produced in reflection to the slaughter of the Jews during World War II. It was set in Auschwitz. It's a movie entitled God on Trial. And the entire movie is filmed mostly in a little bunk in which all of these Jewish men have found themselves as they're waiting their lot to be sent toward the slaughter. And as they're packed in there like rats, they begin to cast doubt on God and to blame God for their current situation. And so they set up in this little room a panel of judges and the defense and the prosecution mount their sides to put God on trial to find out who is to blame for the current situation. 
There was one prisoner highlighted often in the film who remained quiet for the entirety of the movie until the very end. At the very end, just before the judges were set to declare that God was to blame, this one prisoner stood up and spoke. He reminded the other prisoners of God's previous actions. And by doing so, he was reflecting on God's acts toward his people. He was also calling those prisoners in that room to respond and reflect upon God's acts toward them in the present. In his retelling of the Old Testament, he noted that God had caused a famine so that he could send Israel into Egypt. You might remember that from Genesis chapter 41 to 47. And then he reminded them that that God killed children in the process of leading Israel out. One of the last plagues for the nation of Israel to be freed, God slaughtered the young children of the nation of Egypt, but the one who's re- who was responsible for all of Egypt's, uh, for Egypt enslaving the Jews, Pharaoh, God did not kill. God collapsed the Red Sea on the Egyptian shoulders, soldiers instead of restoring the sea before they all rode in and died. God told Saul, for example, to destroy Amalekite. But when, in the prisoner's words, Saul showed mercy, what does God do? God completely rejects Saul as king. When David defeated Moab, he chose some men to live and some men to die. When Nathan showed David his sin with Bathsheba. God didn't only punish David. God destroyed his son in seven days of brutality. What did the prisoner conclude? He concluded this, that God, who once had favored them and turned against them, that the all-powerful God, still and ever God, had become a God who at that moment, like at moments in history past, had become their enemy. And yet, in becoming their enemy, he was still a holy, good, righteous, sovereign, worthy to be praised, worthy to give one's life for. He was still God. When God becomes your enemy, how will you respond? Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for the graciousness of your word that reminds us of your sovereign care and direction of our lives and not only our lives, that of history. So Lord, we ask as we reflect for a few moments on this text, on your work in our lives, your direction in our lives, that Lord, through this difficult text, you might increase our faith in you. Would you take a few moments and reflect on your faith in God? Do you have a faith that sustains you regardless of the circumstances? Will you commit now to Psalm 44, verse eight, being a foundation upon which you will construct your life? Knowing that all of us will indeed at some point face this same trial that the psalmist, the nation of Israel has communicated here in Psalm 44. As a hymn writer said and wrote, have faith in God when your pathway is lonely. He sees and knows all the ways you have trod. Never alone are the least of his children. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches or his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God when your prayers are unanswered. Your earnest plea, he will never forget. Wait on the Lord. Trust his word and be patient. Have faith in God. He'll answer yet. Have faith in God in your pain and your sorrow. His heart is touched with your grief and despair. Cast all your cares and your burdens upon him, and leave them there. Oh, leave them there. Have faith in God, though all else fail about you. Have faith in God, he provides for his own. He cannot fail, though all kingdoms shall perish. He rules and reigns upon his throne. Have faith in God, he's on his throne. Have faith in God, he watches o'er his own. He cannot fail, he must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Is that your faith this morning, friend? If you're here today and you've never trusted in the person of Jesus, we pray today that the call of this psalm would be a call to salvation for you, that you today would trust in Christ, that you would repent of your sins, and believe in Jesus. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word.
And as we do, if you have questions about what it means to believe in Jesus, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front with delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Jesus. Or friend, please feel free to turn to anyone seated next to you in this room. There are plenty of people in this room who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Jesus. Secondly, maybe you'd just like one of us to pray with you. That the truth of this psalm might indeed resonate in your life. That your faith in God might indeed be increased. Or perhaps today, you're facing a struggle in which you're tempted to despair. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you that the truths of this psalm might indeed be evident in your life. Or thirdly, if God is impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected, this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Would you stand with me as we respond to God?